Amen. Would you all pray with me? Father God, we do love you. And uh, yeah, we thank you for bringing us together again that we might uh, study more accurately the things concerning Jesus. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would take your word and open it to us, that you would, um, as we think our way through these verses, would you give us eyes to see and hearts to cherish, minds to understand, um, yeah, the things that you've written so that we might be uh, faithful and fruitful in our in our walk with you, making uh, making you known to the world. God, we are, um, as Russ mentioned in his prayer, um, we are served greatly by the disruption and what is normal to us. And so we thank you for um, we thank you for stripping some of that back this week. Um, at the same time, we thank you for providing uh, providing this normal ish Sunday morning where we get to gather and worship. And, um, yeah, listen to preaching and pray together and celebrate Lord's Supper together. So um, we just receive this day as a gift and um, pray that you would give us now, uh, through your spirit, give us hearts to hear aright this morning. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. All right. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Uh, so... I'm going to give this sermon the cheesiest of all sermon titles of all time, probably. Uh, the, the title of today's sermon is Apollos 13. <coughs> all right, y'all can uh, make fun of me if you want to. The reason is not because uh, it's all about, it is all about Apollos. But as I was, I've been studying this text for a couple of weeks now because I was uh, prepared to preach last Sunday, but Timmy jumped in there. Um, and so, uh, but as I've been studying this text, it just seems like a stack of information about this guy named Apollos. And um, I didn't name it until this morning when I tallied up all of the statements that this text makes about Apollos. And would you imagine there were 13 statements about him? So we're just going to call it Apollos 13. Apollos is a very interesting character in Scripture. He is uh, commended um, by... Uh, there, there's no text that holds him up to negative light, anything about him. If there is a negative, it's, it's only going to come in this verse, in these verses, and it is that he didn't quite uh, fully understand uh, the things concerning Christ before he, um, before he started preaching. So everywhere else in the scripture, he is, um, he is roundly praised as a, as a dear and faithful brother in the Lord. And so we're going to just spend our time looking at him. I've got... As I told you, 13 things that I want to point out about Apollos. And then um, at the end, I'm going to have uh, just kind of three exhortations from this story um, about how we can put these things into, into practice. So um, if you want to number them, you can. You certainly don't have to. Um, I just gave you Apollos 13 so you all can make, make fun of me for more than just my man bun this morning. Okay, so... The, the first thing that I want to show you is that he's a Jew. So in verse 24, now, there was a Jew. Uh, secondly, he was named Apollos. Now, that's really interesting. You got a Jew named Apollos. Anybody know Apollo? Apollo is a, is a pagan. He's one of the, um, he's one of the Olympian gods. Okay? Uh, really, um, really important Olympian god. And here's this Jew 
named after um, a pagan deity. We might say, what gives? Like, why? what Jewish parent is going to name their kid um, after one of the gods? So it, would be, it would be like, um, you know, the next baby born in our, uh, in our church, we named him Mohammed or something. We would say, wait, why would you do that? Like, it's a fine name, but you're, it, it seems like you would be affirming that which is contrary to our faith. So, um, pop quiz, you Bible scholars. Can you think of any other Jew who was named, a very significant man who was named after a pagan deity? If any of you guys have read the book of Esther, you know that one of the heroes in the story, um, albeit a sketchy, sketchy hero, one of my least favorite characters in the Bible maybe, is Mordecai. He was uh, named after Marduk. Uh, the, the Babylonian god Marduk. And so we're asking, like, why is this guy uh, a Jew named after a Greek, um, a Greek god? I don't have an answer. I just, it's a, it's a uh, very interesting thing. So he's a Jew. He's named Apollos. And then he's a native of Alexandria. That's the third thing, which is really interesting. Alexandria, uh, in the first century Rome, um, in the Roman world, Alexandria, which is in northern Africa, is one of the, is one of the um, educational centers of the Roman world. So if you came from Alexandria, you had opportunity to have wild education that nobody else had. Alexandria, um, they had uh, one of the most extensive libraries in all of the ancient world. It burned. And so we don't have any of those, um, any of those books except for copies uh, from other places, but... Alexandria was a center for both learning and uh, the Jewish uh, Jewish people. Okay, so um, I, I was looking up this week. So the uh, the two places in the world where you find the most uh, the most central population of Jews, the countries Israel is number one, and, and America is a close second. There are almost as many Jews in America as there are in Israel. But if you take my cities and ask what's the, what's the most populated Jewish city in the world, we might think it would be something like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. No, it's New York City. Uh, Jerusalem has 550,000 Jews. New York City has 1.1 million Jews. So more than half of uh, Jews dwelling in, um, in Jerusalem are dwelling in New York City. And just as a, as a, a picture there, Alexandria was one of the places in the Roman Empire where Jews were centrally located. There are a lot of them there. This is super important as we think through uh, who Apollos was and what he, um, why he was doing what he was doing, which is going to come in our, uh, in our fourth or fifth point here. So he's a Jew named Apollos. He's an Alexandrian native, so he's probably educated. We could discern from there, but we're going to know it from the fourth. He, uh, uh, from the fifth Thing. The fourth thing that I want to show you about it is that he came to Ephesus. This is why this is important about Alexandria being a Jewish center of uh, a, popula- uh, a place that was populated by a lot of Jews. The question is, why did Apollos come to Ephesus? Is he just passing through? If you know, hopefully you've got somewhat of a map of the Mediterranean in your mind so that I don't just speak French here to everybody. But Alexandria is in uh, northern Africa. It's in Egypt today, modern day Egypt. Um, across the Mediterranean, uh, if you go up into Turkey, that's where you're going to find Ephesus. So this guy from Alexandria had to cross the Mediterranean to go to Ephesus. And the question is, why? Is he going there to, uh, to study? No. He's, he's leaving education to go to a place that, uh, that is not as educated. 
Is he going uh, just because he wants to vacation? The answer is no. Why is he going there? He's going there to preach. He's going there to preach, as we're going to see. So he, uh, so he leaves Alexandria, going to Ephesus, and where he's going to go is he's going to go to the Jewish people. He's going to do the same thing that Paul is going to do. Every city that he goes into, he's going to engage with the Jewish people. So he's not just passing through. The most likely thing is that Apollos was going to bring, um, to, to teach the Jewish people, and what he was going to teach them is the baptism of John, of John the Baptist. Um, we'll, uh, we'll dig into that in a little bit, but he is, uh, the idea, you need to know this about, the, about Apollos, is that his ministry was aimed at diaspora Judaism. Jews that were spread out. They weren't in Israel proper. They're spread out all over the Roman world. And so his intent is to travel and to go teach the Jewish people what John told the Jewish people, namely that the Christ that was coming, that, we've been, that they had been waiting for, his name was Jesus. And he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he's a traveling evangelist. And he's preaching, uh, he's preaching to the Jews and he's preaching what John the Baptist spoke to the Jews. Okay, number five. He was an eloquent man. Now this is really interesting because Paul is described as exactly the opposite. Um, <clears throat> when Paul comes to Corinth, he tells them, I purpose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in fear and in trembling so that your faith would not rest on the eloquence of man but on the power of God. And so uh, he also mentions, Paul does, that there was a rumor going around about Paul that in his writings he was a lion and in his person he was a lamb. So like, you're not the same guy. When you write, you write heavy and we all say, man, this guy is like big bad news. He's like, he can be abrasive, he can be bold and then he comes to us and he's like this simpering guy. What, what gives? Well, it's just who Paul was and it's totally fine. It's the way God had gifted him. Um, Apollos is the opposite. Apollos is one of the few men who can stand in front of a group of people and rock their face. Like he is an eloquent um, speaker. I was listening to a, um, a comedian one time who was talking about, uh, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't telling jokes, he was just talking generally about what it is to be a stand-up comic. And he said there are two types of people in the world today um, that can do what Apollos could do, to stand in front of uh, crowds of people and hold them captive. It's good preachers, so not all of us. Good preachers can do this, and great comics can do this. Apollos could do it. He could stand and hold uh, and hold everyone's attention as he preached. And so he's a contrast. He's a contrast to Paul. The sixth thing that Luke tells us about this man is that he was competent in the scriptures. Now this is super important. At this point in time. The only scripture that he had to be competent in was the entirety of the Old Testament. So probably what this means is that he was a master of Genesis through Malachi in the things concerning um, the, the silhouette that the Old Testament paints about who Christ would be and what he was going to come to do. So the, the foreshadows, the patterns, the promises, he would have been a master of those things, which John the Baptist was. Because John the Baptist was the anchor leg of the Old Testament prophets. Everybody in the Old Testament looked forward and said, there's coming one. There's, there's a, a Messiah who's going to come. This is what he's going to look like. This is what he's going to do. And they spoke sort of in shadows and in patterns and in promises. And John was the last Old Testament prophet, as it were, that got to say, this is him. 
No longer are we looking forward and saying, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. John says, this is the guy. And so um, Apollos would have been familiar with how the Old Testament points forward toward the Messiah and that the Messiah's name was Jesus, okay? So he was competent in the scriptures. Um, somebody said about John Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, is that right? I said Paul Bunyan one time and everybody made fun of me. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Sorry, I, I just put K on the spot. Okay, somebody said about John Bunyan that he was such a student of the Word of God that if you cut him, he would bleed Scripture. Okay, that's Apollos. That's Apollos. He was a master. He was competent in the Scripture. Um, and competent in the Scripture as far as being able to, to give a defense for the faith by the text, not just espousing opinions, but being able to master chapter and verse and to take people through the word of God and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, the seventh thing, he's competent in scripture seven. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, okay? Had been instructed in the way of the Lord. This comes, as we're gonna see, um, by way of John the Baptist. So he, so he knew the way of the Lord Jesus. And... He was fervent in spirit. Eight. He was fervent in spirit. I love this. The, the literal rendering would be he was boiling or seething in his, in his spirit. Now, um, John Calvin had a lot of interesting things to say about this and how the, the pairing between somebody who is a master of the word of God and who is seething in spirit. So... If you have one, like you've met guys that are seething, they're boiling in the spirit, but they just don't know the word of God. And so they're just kind of out there wherever they land. They're going to land there at 150 miles an hour, but it may or may not be the right thing. You've also met, if you've ever been to um, institutions of higher education, you have met men who are competent in the scriptures and they're just flat in the spirit. They just, it's, they're slothful in zeal. There's something absolutely um, life-giving when you have someone who it can be said of them if you cut them they will bleed scripture and they're boiling in affection for Christ that is a combination that's rare and it is glorious I think it was um, uh, Spurgeon some young guy said how do I uh, what what advice would you give me as I go into ministry and he said Light yourself on fire for Jesus Christ and the world will come to watch you burn. That's glorious, glorious advice. So he was fervent in spirit. So he was learned, but he was also fervent. Uh, ninth, that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he is, um, do you guys know that the... the uh, have you ever sat under somebody? Please don't say this is me. But have you ever sat under somebody and you came away from, from them saying, I think he knows what he's talking about, but I don't know what he's talking about, right? So like he, they're unable to articulate the things that they're trying to get across. You can tell they understand themselves, but nobody else can understand them. He can speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus so he can actually give a defense for the faith. Now, 10, this is the one knock against Apollos. Though all of these things were true, he was a Jew named Apollos from Alexandria, came to Ephesus, eloquent, competent in the scripture, 
been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in the Spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though all of that's true, it says, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, this is a huge issue. It's, it's going to factor in. So please, please remember this when we come to study the next text in uh, chapter 19. Um, so I want to do a thought experiment with you. So Apollos is this really sharp guy, but his, his understanding of the salvific work of God comes up only to the point of John the Baptist, and then presumably he went off to go preach what John had told, had told him. So he learned from John, and now he's traveling, and he missed out on what we would call the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the story. So Paul Harvey hadn't gotten to him yet. He has not heard, though he had seen uh, John the Baptist testify to Christ and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross is probably a mystery to Apollos. The resurrection is probably a mystery. The ascension is probably a mystery. Pentecost is absolutely a mystery. We're going to find that out next week, Lord willing. So there's a lot that Apollos doesn't know uh, because he... Uh, because he's only acquainted with the ministry of John the Baptist. So let me let me uh, see if I can tease this out for you. Imagine if your Bible consisted of Genesis through Malachi, and then you got Matthew chapter 1, 2, and 3, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. You got Luke chapter 1 through, I think, maybe 4, 3, chapter 3, chapter 4 not as familiar with Luke. Uh, and then you got John 1 uh, almost through to chapter 2. And that's all you got. You got no Acts, no Romans, no First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. You don't have anything else. No Revelation. All you, No Revelation. Yeah. No John's Revelation. Right? So you have the Old Testament and then you've got a couple chapters in the New. Think about all of the things that you might not understand. Now, it's very important that, uh, that you hear me say this, that every full-orbed manifestation of what we would call orthodox, biblical, mere Christianity, everything is found in seed form in, in the Old Testament, and everything is found in seed form in the first few chapters of the Gospel. But there is much that, is, that needs to be teased out. Case in point, Acts chapter 10 Peter is still scandalized that the Gentiles are incorporated into the, to the Jewish covenant promises. It's like, it's like never before been heard, even though, um, even though we've had it promised in the Old Testament and that Jesus hinted at it in, in the Gospels. So, what kind of things would Apollos, though he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, namely that he was the son of David, the Messiah that had come to bring all the promises to fruition, what kind of things would he not have known? Most likely he would not have known that Jesus gave his life on a cross to pay for sin. Most likely he would not have known that three days later he rose from the dead. Most likely he would not have known that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That he sent his disciples out into the world to go make disciples of all the nations promising to be with them until the point when he would return. Most likely he did not know those things. He certainly did not know that people were to be... He did not know the nature in which the Holy Spirit would come post-Pentecost. After Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came upon 
the church in a, in a previously unforeseen way, or not unforeseen, but a previously unseen way. It was prophesied. Jesus expected Nicodemus to know it in John chapter 3. But again, that's information that we don't have with John the Baptist. Um, so, he wouldn't have known that... Uh, he Okay, he would have known to preach... Uh, the, nece- the necessity of conversion to the Jewish people. John told them that. You have no hope in just being born a Jew. You have to repent. You have to be converted. You have to believe in the one who is coming after me. So he knew that you needed to be converted, but he didn't know how that was going to come to be. He didn't know what that was going to look like, at least the full picture of it. We're going to meet some of his disciples next week, Lord willing, when Paul asks them a very strange question because he sees that there's something wrong with the way that they understand the gospel. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Put a parenthesis there. Because everybody is supposed to. So, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we hadn't even heard if there was a Holy Spirit. What is this that you're talking about? Why? Well, it's because they were disciples of Apollos, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, who didn't quite know the full orb gospel. I didn't know everything that uh, that we know once the once the, the um, disciples are born again and are able to start teaching. So all of these things were seeded in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, but they weren't teased out until the New Testament was written. So Apollos' preaching is is uh, a, a, one commentator put it this way, and I think it's fantastic. His preaching is not inaccurate; it's just incomplete. Okay? Everything he's saying is right and true. It's just incomplete. He's a man in transition and he doesn't know uh, he doesn't know the full the full picture. Okay? So he had only been acquainted with the baptism of John. Now, in verse uh, what verse is that? 26? I've uh, drawn a line through it. The eleventh thing that he began he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, which ought to sound familiar to you. What other Jewish man who is fervent in the Spirit always goes to the synagogue to preach Jesus? It's Paul. So Apollos and Paul are two kindred spirits. They're they're very different men, but they love the same thing and do the same thing. So he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Now, I want to show you an implicit, I didn't count it uh, among the, the observations because it's an implicit observation. It's not stated in the text, but it's glorious. And it's about the humility of Apollos. You guys know, right? Uh, so remember, Apollos uh, was acquainted with John's baptism, with John's ministry. Do you remember what John said when his disciples came and said, Hey, everybody's leaving you and they're going to follow Jesus. What are you going to do about it? What did John say? He must increase, I must decrease. And so there's just this radical humility there that I think he passed on to Apollos. Uh, this is an implicit observation about Apollos, but his humility is pretty stout. Watch this. So he's only acquainted with baptism of John. He's, he's, uh, he begins to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, who were friends and disciples of Paul, who he left in Ephesus... Uh, as Paul was going over to Antioch, he left them in Ephesus. So they're there in the synagogue and they hear this guy stand up and he starts preaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but they realize there's something in his teaching that's not quite right. He's, he's right 
It's not wrong, but he just, he needs, there's something missing here. And so they heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, think about this for a moment. Um, what did uh, what did Priscilla and Aquila do for a living? Do you remember reading this a couple weeks ago? They were tent makers. They, they had the same trade as Paul. That's why they kind of got together in Corinth. Um, is that they were tent makers. And so here's this radically educated man who's competent in the scriptures, who's a great orator. He's capable of standing in front of large crowds of people and holding their attention and preaching in such a fantastic way that, that it moves the souls of men. And yet he's willing to be taken aside by some tent makers and be instructed. And he actually receives their instruction and becomes equipped to, to rightly divide the word of truth and to preach the full or gospel. So there's a humility uh, about Apollos that I, that I love. We're not told it explicitly. It's an implicit thing. Um, it is very interesting. So look, look closely at what Priscilla and Aquila did when they heard him. So they hear him, they hear something is off, and they do two things to bless Apollos. First off is they took him aside. Um, let me ask you something. If you have to be corrected or called out, would you rather, if I were going to correct you, would you rather me do that here? Or would you rather me say, like, hey, like, let's go get some coffee and let's talk this thing. So they, they, they honored him enough to say, not to challenge him in the synagogue and say, hey, no, that's, that, you're not right. They, hey, Let's, let's talk about these things. So they, they honored him enough to take him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, to explain that, that idea is to explain carefully or to let someone in on something. I love that. I love the way that uh, that's rendered. To let him in on something. So it's really interesting. Uh, one commentator pointed out that uh, it was Calvin. He pointed out how humble... Priscilla and Aquila are because uh, if you know anything about public speakers, they love to be uh, new and fresh and to, and to give things that nobody's ever heard, right? That's like, the, that's the joy. It's like when you study something and you know something that nobody else knows and you get to lay it out and everybody goes, wow, that guy's the smartest guy I've ever seen. I know that happens to you every Sunday um, when you sit under my preaching. But Priscilla and Aquila, that was, yeah, Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and they give him, they give the content away because it's not theirs and they don't care about the glory and neither does Apollos. They just give it to him and he takes it and runs and has this fantastically awesome ministry. We, um, so in the um, winter wonderland that was LaGrange uh, all week, we did, some, uh, we did some deep dives into some YouTube channels and one of them is, uh, have you guys seen the guy that, um, he was a former NASA um, engineer and worked for, uh, worked for Apple for a time. But he's the guy who did – people kept stealing his Amazon packages, and so he did the, the, the glitter bomb. When you steal his stuff, it, it blows up and it, it, uh, it shoots out like fart smell in your car. and like oh, it's, it's glorious. It's really fantastic. Well, we were watching where <laughs> another famous um, YouTube uh, channel guy uh, who I guess their whole shtick is they drop stuff off of high – places uh, i don't know understand or get it but they they asked him to build them a trampoline that they could drop a car onto from like 100 foot or something like that and so he being the nasa engineer that he did that he is he builds them a trampoline and they drop a bunch of stuff 
culminates in dropping a car and then a boat on it. I, I don't get it. But it was really, really, really interesting because I kept noticing these little statements that they would throw out where uh, on his, we watched it on his deal and he was dropping stuff and you'd see it bounce. And then they would drop stuff and it, would, it wouldn't show the bounce and it would just say, go watch whatever, whatever channel. And they kept saying things like, uh, like okay, so there was, they were trying to decide if they were going to drop the car or the boat. And the um, one YouTube channel said, I see that you're, you're going to drop the car first so, so that you have content for your channel. And if the trampoline breaks, we'll be out of luck. And he's like, hey, man, you got to take care of number one. And it's this idea that like we have to produce. They're making a living, a good living, producing new content. And so I have to make sure that my content stays fresh and I can't let you steal it. Even though we're sort of working together, we're not on the same team. Priscilla and Aquila don't have that attitude at all with Apollos. We are all on the same team under the Lordship of Christ. And if you're not quite accurate, we would love to equip you. We would love to help you do a better job of preaching Christ. Apollos listens to them, which is an amazing thing. Um, Imagine an Oxford PhD putting himself under the tutelage of a blue-collar worker. Um, not to be taught about how a blue-collar worker goes about his job, but to be taught by that person theology. It's an amazing show of humility. I read a story one time about uh, a Japanese doctor, who's a very famous doctor in, in Japan, top of his field. At, like um, Everybody cared about what he said. He's just this great brain great man and he came to know Christ and started going to church and he, and he went to the pastor and said I need somebody to disciple me to, to, to show me the ropes here the, guy, the pastor was like yeah I got, a, I got a perfect guy he's one of the most godly men that I know and this guy said I, I, um, he came and put himself under that man that the pastor provided and he said they studied together walked together prayed together uh, it was a discipleship relationship and he describes it as like very clear teacher pupil like I I was a sponge and he was the water. And he's just dumping into me. I'm maturing in the faith. And he said he was with this guy for months. And then he realized that guy was the janitor of the church. Like his job was to clean the toilets. And this, this Japanese doctor who is world famous, like everybody wants to know about what he thinks about being a doctor, what he thinks about medicine, all these things. He realized that didn't make any difference at all concerning the body of Christ. That in a very real sense, you have a janitor who's A-team and you have a doctor who's JV and needs his help. And he said he loved that picture of the body of Christ. And again, like Apollos, had the humility to not let that be off-putting and say, well, no, I'm a doctor. I'm not going to study under a janitor. Um, he, he, he loved that man and was, and was helped um, intricately by him. So in the church, there's no respecter of persons. The lowest by world rank may be the highest one among us, and vice versa. So, there's humility in Apollos. Twelfth is that he wished, the text tells us, um, so they take him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then in verse 27, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Pop quiz. Why does he want to cross into new territory? What's his motive? Vacation? Just, I've never been there. I kind of want to see. What's he doing in Ephesus? He's preaching Christ. 
aimed at the synagogues. He's going in, leaning into a controversial, um, a conflicting ministry to the Jewish people. And after he's been in Ephesus in a while and gets some, uh, some further equipping from Pr- Priscilla and Aquila, he says, I want to go to new territory. So he's the type of man who desires to make Christ known in a place that he's never been before. And so the brothers encourage him and they wrote on his behalf. So he wanted this. He wished to cross. It is a fine thing to desire what God has commanded. Let me say that to you again. It is a fine thing for you to desire what God has commanded. There's so often where um, uh, you, you'll talk to people and you'll say, hey, have you ever considered doing this? And, and people will say, and I know what they mean. I, I, I've, I've thought it, felt it before. Uh, but they'll say something like, I don't feel called to do that. And I think a really um, helpful thing is to ask, like, have you been commanded to do such things, though? Or have you been invited to, to do such things? Has, has God invited you to be a part of that? Because if he has, you don't have to always just sit back and wait for him to ride it in the clouds if he wants you particular to go do this work. You can desire to be a part of what God is doing in the world and then go do that thing. So the brothers encourage him. He wished to go. The brothers encouraged him. Last, uh, last point here is uh, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. A couple things just to point out before I give you three exhortations. First off, anyone who believes does so by the grace of God. Did you see that? He greatly helped those who through the grace of God had believed. It is by grace alone that we are given eyes to see and hearts to believe in Christ. And so Apollos shows up in Achaia. Yeah, he comes uh, He comes to Corinth uh, eventually. And uh, Achaia is, is uh, an area in, in uh, Greece. So it includes uh, places like Corinth and Athens and Sparta and um, some of those some of those Greek city-states. And so he, he greatly helps and encourages those who through grace had believed. But he helped them by powerfully refuting the Jews in public. So to refute means to overwhelm someone in argument. Isn't that awesome? So he is helping the believers while at, by overwhelming unbelievers in argument. Just curiosity, like... Has, anybody, has that ever happened to you where you see somebody who's faithfully upholding the word of God, upholding the truth of the gospel in the public sphere, and he's overwhelming those who would, who would not believe? Have you ever received encouragement like that? I, I have, for sure. And this is how he refuted them. Those who through grace had believed, he helped them, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus? There's a few texts in in, uh, in the scripture. If you had a um, if you had a time machine, that would be worth going back to see. If you ever played that game of like, what scene in the in the Bible would you go back to watch? I always think it would get no better than Jesus on the road to Emmaus, preaching, beginning with Moses through all the prophets, showing the things concerning himself in the scripture. To be the greatest sermon of all time. They said when he disappears, were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? This would be this would be a hard number two. That this guy 
is, is powerfully refuting the Jews, demonstrating by the scriptures, proving by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That would have been a fantastic um, set of sermons to hear. Okay, so three things, and then uh, we'll celebrate communion. First off, teach what you know. Teach what you know. Okay, raise your hand if you have absolutely nothing left to learn about Jesus and about the Bible. You're just the master, right? No, of course not. One of my favorite professors, uh, well, my favorite professor at DTS told me about his favorite professor at DTS, who is one of the historic greats of all time, named S. Lewis Johnson. And he would tell his seminary students, he would say, men, someday you're going to walk across that stage and they're going to give you a certificate that says master, master of biblical theology. And he said, don't you believe a word of it. You will never master this book. We're giving you tools to mine the depths of it, but you get after study. Don't pretend that you have, uh, you have arrived without anything left to learn. Now, so the point here is to teach what you know and don't wait to learn the things that you don't know, right? Um, Apollos, God bless his soul, shows up in Ephesus to, man, he's out there preaching Christ. He's doing a great job, but he still doesn't know about the Holy Spirit and the resurrection. Like kind of a big deal, but he's not going to sit around and wait. And it's by teaching that he became equipped, that he came across Priscilla and Aquila, that God, uh, you know that, uh, that statement, that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called, right? That's what we always say in our uh, youth camp and ministry. Okay, so um, one of, when I, when I first, the very first person I ever sat down in one-to-one disciple, um, the first text I took him to was uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000 because I felt so um, unbelievably inadequate to try and disciple somebody because there was so much that I didn't know. And so I took him to that text to just say, hey, disclaimer here, like uh, in the same way that Jesus fed the 5,000 through the disciples, he's going to feed you through me. And just like them, Jesus tells the disciples disciples to make them sit down. And so they sit down and then the disciples come to Jesus and he breaks bread and he gives it away. And they know that the kitchen is empty, right? They've seen the cupboards. They know the count of the bread and the fish and they know that Jesus does not have it. They also know that they're going to have to be the ones that break it to a hungry crowd that they don't have any food. So Jesus forces them to be in the uncomfortable middle. And what happens is they go, and he gives them a little crumb and a cracker and some fish, and he says, go give it away. And they don't get any more until they give it away. But the text says in in Luke in particular, the, the verb tense there is not that Jesus gave them, but Jesus kept giving them bread, and he kept giving them fish. So do you want to make disciples? Teach what you know and keep coming back to Jesus and he will give you more and he will give you more and that's how it's going to work. Um, I, I will tell you, I, uh, and I, I grew up under one of the most spectacular expository preachers of all time, uh, not so much in his church, but just listening to his sermons. I got, uh, got to go to Criswell College where I attained a lot of, uh, a lot of tools to teach God's word. DTS, the same thing. Finished up at Knox, same thing. I will tell you, 
far and away, I learned more about the scripture by, um, by having weekly to stand in front of you and divide the word of God. This has been the means by which he has, he has instructed me more than any other means. And there's a, there's a hyper-spiritual thing I heard in, in college that sounded so good to me. They said, don't, see if you can follow this, don't let the pulpit drive you to the Bible, but let the Bible drive you to the pulpit. Meaning like, don't just study, and nobody wants to do that, right? Would you want to come and hear somebody preach week after week after week who, if he did not have to preach, would not read his Bible? The answer is, of course not. Of course not. But, but, and the elders can all testify to this, there is something uniquely glorious about having the responsibility, understanding the weight of what it is to preach the word of God and say, thus saith the Lord, when, when I know that's coming on Sunday, that drives me to the text in a way that is unheard of in any other context. Um, and so I would just say, if you, if you want to grow in your faith, maybe the best possible way to do that is to put yourself on the hook to teach somebody, right? Jesus said, go and make disciples to 11 guys, many of whom were still trying to figure out what the resurrection meant, Okay. And he says, go make disciples. So, so go make disciples. Teach what you know. That's first. Second, be humble enough to receive correction and bold enough to dish it out. Okay? Humble enough to receive correction, bold enough to dish it out. Um, there's, there's, a humble, there's, a hum, there's a humility that causes boldness. Do you follow me? Um, I wonder if y'all could get the right answer to this question. Do you know the two most humble men in the Bible? Everybody knows number one. Who's the most humble man who's ever lived? I'll give you a hint. His name is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the most humble man. But in the Old Testament, we were told that there was one guy explicitly that he was the most humble man in all of Israel. Anybody know him? Moses. Now... When Moses is calling down Pharaoh to repent and he's pronouncing, you know, curses and doing all of these radical things like of, of leadership, does he look humble or does he look bold? He looks bold, but the text tells us he was the most humble man in all of Israel. So there's a humility that brings boldness. And so there's a humility that you have to have. And you have to be humble enough to receive correction. That you're not the cat's pajamas that's always right. We all need correction. And at, at the same time, you need to be bold enough when you see somebody who's not quite accurate, like Apollos, that you would humbly come and say, Hey, man, let me help you. Let me help you get to where you need to be. Um, yeah. Priscilla and Aquila and, and Apollos each have a heaping degree of humility and boldness. Being tent makers doesn't keep them from speaking up. Being well-educated doesn't keep him from listening and receiving instruction. So be humble enough to receive correction. Be bold enough to dish it out. Lastly, embrace both sides of the preaching coin. Embrace both sides of the preaching coin. So uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished and uh, maybe equipped, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Those four things: teaching, reproof, correction, training. Two of them are positive, and two of them are negative. 
teaching and training. That's, that's positive investment. I'm teaching you something you don't know so that you can know something you don't know. I'm training you how to do something so that you can live a godly life. And then reproof and correction are both tearing something down. You believe falsehood and I need to tear it down by the word of God. Both sides of preaching are necessary to build up and to tear down. New Testament preaching proclaims Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised for sinners, exalted as Lord. Okay? It is for the building up of the body of Christ and it's for the denunciation and tearing down of any argument that would deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, and I quote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We, Paul says, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. How many lofty opinions? Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we see Apollos preaching, uh, powerfully refuting the Jews, an apologetic public ministry that's highly confrontational, and he deeply encourages the body. Uh, so there's there's two edges to the preaching of, of Christ in the Scriptures. One is... Uh, the shepherding of the body of Christ, the building up, and the other is the tearing down of that which would exalt itself against the Lordship of Christ. Let me pray for us, and we'll uh, celebrate communion. Father God, thank you for uh, thank you for Apollos. Thank you for um, the way, Lord, that you uh, just the glimpse that we get as we follow Paul um, and tend to. Uh, tend to want to make um, Paul normative for the Christian life and measure ourselves by him and all be found wanting in the scale. Thank you for giving us a glimpse at Apollos, who's, um, who's very similar. He's a brother, a fellow laborer, Paul calls him, but at the same time has a different skill set, just a different type of ministry. We thank you for giving us uh, insight into him, into his humility, uh, into, into the incompleteness of his teaching. Help us, Lord, to be among the Priscilla's and Aquila's of the world, that we would be able to spot uh, the difference between somebody who is heterodox, who is teaching a different Christ, and somebody who just needs a little more training. Would you help us to be discerning there? Help us to be active in making Christ known to those who've never heard and also to those who have heard but don't quite yet fully understand. Would you help us to bear fruit in both endeavors? We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. When Jesus suffered under the hands of the Jews and Pontius Pilate, he did so for a purpose. That purpose is summed up beautifully in Ephesians 5. Now, I'm going to give you what it doesn't say so that you can remember what it does say. And it'll hit you maybe in a new way or in a powerful way, hopefully. Husbands, love women as Christ loved the world. Is that what the text says? Husbands, love as Christ loved the church. And, and gave himself up for the world? No, gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify the world? No, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself 
in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For what end did Christ die to this end? That He would present the church back to Himself, holy, without blemish. That's why He died. So often, when we come to the table of remembrance, we come instead in willful forgetfulness. We forget that Christ's death was aimed at our full recreation and that He actually hit what He was aiming at. We often forget what He has accomplished because we are too busy remembering our own failures. But brothers and sisters, those failures are ultimately gifts of God meant to help us in our remembrance of Christ. A wise man once said that the offer of a bath assumes the need for a washing. Well, the offer of a broken body and shed blood assumes that you and I do not have within ourselves what is required. Is that great news? You do not have in yourselves what is required. We are meant to remember our inadequacies for the briefest of moments so that we can remember more joyfully that what we lack in ourselves has been freely given to us in Christ. He is, listen to me, everything you will ever need. And He has been fully and freely given to you. This is His body broken for you. This is His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. This is His design in providing Himself for you that you would be His. So you come remembering what He did and why He did it. Why did He give Himself up for the church? It's because He loved her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You come remember His labor and you remember His love. You come. Welcome to Christ. We pray for you. Father, we ask as we come to the Lord's table that You would send the Spirit among us. That He would take of what is Christ's and disclose it to us. Impart it to us. Lord, that as we eat and drink in faith, that you would help us to participate in some magical, mystical way, to participate in all that Christ is. Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for giving yourself for us to this end, that you would present us back to yourself, holy and blameless before you. Would you, would you minister to us now? Holy Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.